Look up idiot in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month I'm exploring some films of the conexploitation genre, ooh, that was hard, conexploitation to say that, um, as recommended by David Bax of Battleship Pretension, and in this week's episode I'll be talking about Bob Clark's 1974 horror film, Black Christmas. Um, I want to preface that everything I'm about to say when it comes to analyzing or um, reading into the themes or philosophies or mentalities behind Black Christmas is going to be heavily influenced by the HBO docuseries I'll Be Gone in the Dark um, about um, the late Michelle McNamara and her work on discovering the identity of the um, East Area Rapist the um, Golden State Killer, however you want to describe this person as, um, that's been at the forefront of my mind for um, basically the last few weeks because we've been watching it. It's been great, but it it, it has painted, influenced, skewed, whatever verb you want to use. It has had an influence on how I watched Black Christmas specifically, so I want to preface that and say if you disagree with my analysis that I understand, um, but it's my podcast, (laughs) so that's what I'm going to do. But before I I talk about the themes, I I guess I I do want to talk about Black Christmas as a a genre film, as a a quite effective technical and artistic achievement, to be honest. Um, We, David and I talked about uh, Canucksploitation films being precursors to American genre films in many ways, Um, and so... I feel I need to kind of start out on uh, this idea of how what we see in Black Christmas was then later seen in other genre films. Um, now, Bob Clark, I know, didn't consider Black Christmas to be a slasher film. Um, you know, we, we talked about it being kind of the prototypical slasher film. Bob Clark did not consider it to be so. He considered it more of a um, a psychological horror thriller, which I guess kind of makes sense when it comes to the idea that you... You don't really see the, you know, the aforementioned slashing. Um, this film isn't really a, about a visceral response or a visual, or, or visual. Why am I having such trouble saying that word? Visceral um, reactions, basically. Um, we don't see a lot of the kills, and even the most graphic one, which would probably be, I think, um, Barb's death, um, the Margot Kidder character. We don't really see the stabbing so much, at least in the sense of gore and viscera and that sort of thing, we, we see more uh, in impressions of it. Now, I'm not married to that that idea. I, I certainly don't believe that Black Christmas is not a slasher, but that's just what Bob Clark said. Um, and yet, despite his insistence that it wasn't a, a slasher, um, we do still have the opening sequence in this film, our introduction to the film, our introduction to who will ultimately be the character or, or the, the killer and who will ultimately be his victims, we see that shot in POV. 
somebody observing the house, somebody watching the the uh, you know the the guests as they arrive for this Christmas party, and then inside the windows, and then climbing up the side of the of the house and getting into the attic, we have basically an introduction to this world in this film that we will see duplicated four years later in Halloween, in which our introduction to that world, to those characters, to the killer and the killer's relationship to his victims, shot in first-person POV. Um, so <laughs> I, I don't want to assume that John Carpenter ripped it off. I don't want to assume that John Carpenter had seen this movie, but it does strike me as incredibly interesting that these two seminal horror classics introduce you, the audience, to the world and to the characters in the same specific deliberate directorial choice. Um, in addition, this, you know, was also one of the one of the first ones, um, one of the first horror films to be set on uh, a holiday, which would, you know, later be seen in My Bloody Valentine, which I'll be covering next week. But then other films like Mother's Day, a, a slew of Christmas horror movies like Krampus and, and um, kind of, I don't want to say ultimately culminating, but also um, something like April Fool's Day, which is actually um, an underseen and underappreciated um, gem of horror parody. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend that you check it out. But um it was a, a brilliant piece of subversion to set this film on Christmas. I mean, just like when uh, Carpenter would later make Halloween, he said, uh, despite the the influence or, or, or the reputation or the, the spirit of Halloween, no one had actually set a horror film on the night until they did. Um, similarly, you have to imagine how sacred, I guess you want to say, um, <laughs> the Christmas holiday season was, um, and, and how... Brilliantly, it is to um, kind of darkly subvert the charity, the the light, the um, the joy that comes from uh, the Christmas holiday season. Setting a, a horror film on that day, how novel that was, and how interesting that was. I mean, I mean, if you just look at it, you know, what's some of the things that we think about when we think of Christmas? You know, we have peace on earth, uh, which there is certainly not any peace on this film from the beginning to the very end, which seems to indicate that things will continue to go on. We have goodwill toward men. Um, not only is there no goodwill in this movie, or very little goodwill, I suppose, uh, an argument could be made for, um, for Lieutenant Fuller, uh, but we also don't have that uh, that will being directed towards men. The 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 objects of this killer and of this film are women. Um, we have a, a holiday which is um, rooted well, at least in the in the Judeo Christian um, evolution of the Christmas holiday season, which is uh, very much supported by a lot of the 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 songs and the hymns and the, and the sort of the things that we see in this movie and we see around the holiday season. Um, stems from celebrating the birth of someone, where uh, in this film it is um, a lot of death going on. And then we think of, uh, you know, when it comes to what we are all, what we all look forward to and what we all um, love, one of the things we love about the Christmas holiday season is that time to rest and relax and to be with family. I mean, specifically in the college context, you know, it was the end of the semester. Everyone was kind of going home for a bunch of weeks. You're returning uh, to where you came from. And even work. Maybe you have a job where your work shuts down for a couple weeks, or you just get a couple days off, or work in general is just kind of slow and everyone is sort of, you know, um, celebrating the Yuletide by kind of taking it easy. But there's this idea of a, a rest and a reconciliation and a rejuvenation to return to who we are, are for the rest of the year once the calendar turns. And it's 
so interesting to me that um, the two of these uh, two things, two characters and, and their relationship to uh, or I should say their actions in this world. I'm not explaining this very well, but when I'm talking about this idea of people returning to where they came from, what do we immediately think of? Um, we think of obviously Claire Harrison, who is unfortunately the first to go and she's then stuffed away up in the attic for the rest of the, the, uh, film, but, um, coming to find her and bring her home is her father, Mr. Harrison, who never finds out the fate of his uh, daughter, is hanging out for the entire duration of the film, kind of clinging on to a false hope to bring his daughter home, to bring her back to where she came from, to complete this circle of the family structure, basically. And he is waiting, and he is waiting, and he is waiting, and he will be perpetually waiting, because even if he ever finds out that his daughter is dead, then that means the family structure has this been broken. Or we have Mrs. Mack, who is uh, waiting for that cab, or, or, or more accurately to say the cab is waiting for her. And it's just this idea of these, these two embodiments of returning, of um, rejuvenation, of getting back to family, back to home, are left hollow and waiting because of what has happened to them, of course, being murdered. Um, it's actually <laughs> kind of admirably cruel without being brutal in the sense of the characters don't know what has happened to these people, but we do. We are turn, uh, tuned into a secret that the rest of the characters don't know, and so there's just sort of this uh, this tension and this mood hanging over us because, you know, you have the people just kind of outside and thinking, just go up in the attic and you will have the answers to your question, but instead our, our fists are just clenched and they are not unclenched because there is no resolution, there is no discovering of what happens to them. So Mr. Harrison, Mrs. Mack's family, will be in a perpetual state of waiting, and that rest and that relaxation and that return to the circle of the family structure will be forever denied to them. It's, once again, cruel without being brutal or without being um, visceral, really. Um... I also want to talk a bit about how well this film uses music and sound to great result. And I, I want to separate those two things because uh, one is about conflict and one is about weaving things together. So when it comes to the conflict, I'm thinking of the music, the choice of the songs, specifically the Christmas songs that are used in this film, I have to believe are deliberate because of how they are juxtaposed with what happens on the screen. So here are not all of them, but just a few of the songs of the carols, whatever you want to call them, that you can hear distinctly in Black Christmas. We have Silent Night, we have Hark the Herald Angel Sing, and we have O Little Town of Bethlehem. And now here is what it is brilliant that Clark chose those films, or sorry, those songs to be included in this film. Silent Night is a pretty obvious one because it's the song which opens up this movie. When this movie starts, the very first carol that we hear being played on a radio, on TV, on whatever, inside the, the sorority house is Silent Night. And it's sort of this sly, ironic wink at the audience Silent Night, Holy Night, this is going to be anything but fucking that. This is going to be horrific. This is going to be brutal. This is going to be a night of unrest, of anger, of fear, of bloodshed, of death. Silent Night, Holy Night, 
all is calm, all is light, is not the case when it comes to this movie. So starting out that is kind of a subtle wink-wink, nudge-nudge to the audience, like, hey, um, we're really in for a ride here. Um, Hark the Herald Angel Sing is, I believe, the carol that is playing um, during the first obscene phone call that, not that the sorority receives, but the one uh, to which we are privy. And why I find that ironic is... um, just uh, some of the lyrics in that too. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. The lyrics of that song speak to peace, speak to mercy, speak to reconciliation. There is no peace in this movie. There is no mercy. There is brutality. There is certainly no reconciliation. There are people being torn asunder when it, uh, you know, quite literally, when it comes to people being killed, but also emotionally. I mean, thinking of, um, we think of the uh, uh, Olivia Hussey's uh, character and her boyfriend and how their uh, relationship is is torn asunder, not because of her, but because her boyfriend is is kind of a dick and severely butthurt by her decision to uh, to want to have the abortion. We have families torn asunder. Mr. Harrison is never going to see his daughter again. We have just this idea of all this peaceful and joyful things that these carols and these songs speak to uh, are not going to be delivered. In fact, they are going to be actively denied to us and to our characters. And then another little one, which is kind of subtle, if you're not paying uh, strict attention, you might miss it, but when Mr. Harrison first arrives on the scene, the bells or the chimes, whatever they are, uh, on the campus itself are are playing O Little Town of Bethlehem. It's kind of uh, broken up and weird, and you really have to focus in on it, but I'm a weirdo, and I love Christmas, so I was focused in on that, um, and that is is intriguing to me because, you know, that, that carol, that hymn, whatever you want to call it, speaks to this sleepy, quiet, little, um, overlooked, unrecognized, uncared about town in which a savior was born, in which the, the salvation of mankind, this single solitary figure who will change uh, the world politically and, and, and socially and, and existentially and spiritually um, will be born. There's going to be this significant paradigm shift in the world from um, broken to saved, if you do um, buy into kind of the old school theological um, evangel- evangelical kind of reading of um a savior being born to save our eternal souls, which that's a separate podcast, a separate discussion, but it all gets back to this idea that this is a carol about a small, sleepy town in which the only significant thing that happens to it is this joyful event of this birth of this little boy. And here we have this sleepy, quiet little college town in which the only significant things that happen to it are brutal murders all occurring on one horrific evening. Once again, it's that juxtaposition, it's that conflict, it's that dramatic and horrific irony in which I have to believe Bob Clark is, you know, nudging us and being like, see, see, the things that you would expect, I am going to actively deny to you. And um, there's another one which I, I forget which carol is singing, but when uh, Olivia Olivia Hussey's character comes to the door when the carolers are out front, I forget which song they are singing, uh, but the even the on-screen um, visual juxta, uh, juxtaposition is right there because there are these carolers um, right outside her door. She is kind of taking a, a moment um, from the craziness of the night to kind of indulge in this peaceful moment while Barb is being killed upstairs. And 
it's not the song that is the juxtaposition that is the craziness of that but also like as she's standing there with the door open she is standing in front of a wreath that is decorated entirely in red lights and she is bathed in red once again kind of signaling what is happening right upstairs what is happening at this moment as she is trying to have this moment of escapism it's quite uh brutal in a in a brilliant sort of way i think now when it comes to the the weaving in of things i'm thinking about um sound and how the sound uh design and and the, and the sound editing is used um in such a way to create tension and, and it's not a juxtaposition it's more of just how um, sounds are being introduced in one way and then it, it plants a seed in your brain which then you project later on into different moments of the film. It's not drawing attention to itself, but it's there. So, for instance, um, obviously the biggest thing are the obscene phone calls uh, that the the sorority house is repeatedly getting throughout the film and how um, if one were to be naive as... I believe the police are, and that is a generous interpretation to call them naive, um, but they believe that it is something completely detached from what is going on uh, that night with the murders taking place in the house and around around town. And at the beginning of the film, it seems like maybe that is a possibility because it seems like it's just some unstable, horny guy maybe making these phone calls saying these crude obscene things or maybe it's even more than one person you know that that in itself just on a visceral level and on, on a superficial level is kind of one of the wonders of what they do with the sound design of these calls where the voice uh fluctuates back and forth between kind of a cackling man and a a screaming unwell woman and, and it's it's one it just kind of chills you to the bone but it, it's also um it introduces um two things to me. One of these things what I talked about with David on the introductory episode, this idea of how um, Bob Clark in this film and in A Christmas Story uses simple phone conversations to elicit really, um, I don't want to say extreme, but really strong visceral reactions from us as the listener. In A Christmas Story, it is the conversation where Ralphie's mom is having a call with Schwartz's mom after Ralphie has said the F word. And Ralphie's mom, obviously, you know, blames because Ralphie did, says, no, he heard it from your son. And you hear the mother screaming on the other line of the phone, running, you hear her footsteps on the floor, and then her smacking her child as her child screams and says, what did I do, mom? These are sound effects that you would not be able to hear clearly over the phone. But because we see, or see them, because we hear them, it paints a picture in our mind of what is happening, and that picture in our mind is then juxtaposed, not juxtaposed, but is then uh, met with the horrified reaction from Ralphie's mom, who kind of immediately regrets her decision and then slowly kind of decides to sort of hang up the phone and escape from the situation she created. That elicits in us a big laugh that to this day i've seen that movie dozens of times to this day that sequence still makes me laugh because of just the um the misguided and uh, and and uh, intentionality behind ralphie's mom to uh, restore some kind of order or justice and what instead happens is the scales are widely tipped um, into uh, chaos and disorder as uh, now another child is being um, woefully and uh, wrongly punished for what is happening but you know it, it's you have that one you know kind of strong visceral reaction it's humor it's comedy it's positive in this one um, we have the opposite and now 
David already hit on this, and I'm sure you already know about this if you are a fan of Black Christmas, but the way that Bob Clark did that was that, um, you know, he was filming the women kind of having very, very, I don't know if you can have a very blank reaction, but kind of blank, sort of tepid reactions to what they were hearing, and then on set he was just kind of yelling things at them. Then later on, he started crafting these crude horrific things and threw them in there kind of making almost like a little bit of a of a, a visual or visual an audio kind of Kuleshov effect in the sense of um you know he could have thrown anything in there and then you would have read a different in, uh, you would have interpreted their reactions differently to what they and you were hearing um but with this one we kind of have um almost like these these women can't make heads or tails of like these these fucking horrible things this person is saying and, and, and their reactions by by directing them to kind of uh, play it um, a little bit numb and, and a little bit uncertain. The the impression that I get from watching those those interactions is that they can't wrap their head around why anyone would do such horrific things to them, but, you know, say such horrific things seemingly unmotivated. Who who are they? Who is this person? What what relation do they have? Why is this happening to them? Which also kind of sets the tone and sets the mood for why is this happening to them is going to be a question which will continuously be asked and never be answered as the film progresses. It's just these things are just happening and there's almost kind of a subtext of it was always going to happen there was sort of an impending doom just because of who this person was which is what we don't know which is also i forgot to mention earlier when i was talking about the precursors to american genre films michael myers being horrifying at least in the original um early installments of halloween well i guess just even the first one because they changed it a bit even in halloween 2 which i still really like but just this idea of there really is no discernible reason for why Michael Myers is doing what he is doing. Um, there's maybe this Im I I implication or impression that he is fulfilling some mission or that he's just kind of some robot who is acting on impulse or, or what. But it's just the fact that there is a question, that there is no clarity as to why he is doing what he is doing, makes him more terrifying, makes him so incredibly frightening um rob zombie would come along you know decades later and remake it and we're like well you know he was just a real hurt little kid and it just it, it demystifies a character in such a way we're like well now i don't find him interesting in the slightest but this character here we do kind of get the impression that he is mentally unwell based on some of the things he's saying always referring to agnes who is not really a character and referring to himself as billy but then also having this voice which is addressing billy you get the sense this is a mentally unwell person but the fact that it's not, we never find out who he is, what his connection is to these to these women, to any character, to any person or anything at all, makes it so much more terrifying. Um, but two of the the sound effects that are really kind of prevalent when these obscene calls are happening are sort of the this this like grunting, this real pig like grunting, and then just the, you know this lunacy kind of cackling. Um, those sounds are echoed in other non-killer person situations 
throughout the rest of the film. You know, the grunting, you kind of hear it when Barb is kind of having an asthma attack, and, and, and I forget the character's name, but she kind of rushes up to give her an inhaler, and it kind of sounded like, the you know, the person was inside the house, but it was really just Barb kind of grunting from having an asthma attack. The cackling laughter, we hear that imitated or echoed in uh, one of the police officers who was working in close proximity to Lieutenant Fuller. And I, I don't think that it's done to indicate or imply that these people may be the killers but instead it, it's it's done to indicate or imply to you this sense of paranoia that whether we're inside of the house or outside of the house we always have to be on edge because that killer is just kind of ever present and could be anywhere and it just kind of adds this subtle sense of paranoia and fear um, that one would get from living in such a such a situation or being or being a victim basically of of such horrific attacks um and now I, I get to the point of where I'm going to explain how some of my analysis and what I responded to is heavily influenced by the docu-series I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Now, if you haven't watched it, um, I won't spoil things for you, but it is a, it is a, a docu-series which is about um, Patton Oswalt's late wife, Michelle McNamara, and the work that she was doing on researching um, the... Uh, Eurons is what they've called them, the East Area Rapist, and or and or the original Night Stalker. Um, it was a, basically a, a person who started out raping many people in the, kind of the San Francisco Bay Area in the 1970s and 1980s, then eventually moved down south and then started uh, picking up his work, but also including murder uh, on his on his docket. And and uh, and and I'm reminded of this because of two uh, two things. One, kind of a, a loose real life influence i mean uh, bob clark and, and uh you know kind of said that this wasn't really this film wasn't inspired by anything specific or wasn't based on anything specific but um you kind of had to be inspired or 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 aware at least of the fact that in the 1970s um canada was dealing with its own serial killer a guy named wayne wayne bowden who was called i believe the vampire rapist because he would uh, bite his his victims at you know while he was attacking them. Um, he was actually the first um, uh, murder. Uh, it was the first murder conviction in North America, um, brought about by um, odontological evidence, which basically means uh, they tracked him down because of his teeth marks. Um, but that was sort of in the public consciousness in Canada in the 1970s, and here in the 1970s, we had. Eurons going around and wreaking havoc, and it wasn't publicized a lot. This is a, a, a big thread in I'll Be Gone in the Dark, that these attacks weren't taken seriously for two reasons. Well, actually, just kind of for one reason. Because these attacks were happening to women, and because back then, rape was not really considered that big of a deal when it came to an offense. Now, you could say rightly so, rape is still not taken as much of that big of a deal by law enforcement these days either. Back in the 70s, it was even worse. That's why, you know, you know, no one really wanted to make a connection or could make a connection. No one even considered a, a serial killer or a serial rapist. And, and when Iran's moved his attacks down to Southern California, to more Southern California, they, they were whether you want to say incapable or unwilling to kind of make a connection is sort of up to you. But the, the subtext there is a police force largely made up of men in a society where attacks against women were not taken too seriously led to a real hesitation or feet dragging when it came to putting resources and attention on a case in which a man raped and murdered 
literally dozens of people. And so I just kept thinking about that as I was watching this because of just this idea of the authority figures keep saying, it's probably nothing. Your friend was probably just staying overnight at a boyfriend's house. It's probably just a boy playing a trick on you with these phone calls. It's probably nothing. And basically, the concerns and the fears of the women characters are constantly being dismissed by men authority figures because they are not taking the women's fears seriously. You know, Lieutenant Fuller eventually does, but only kind of when there is, I don't want to say overwhelming evidence, but a lot of evidence kind of pointing to the fact that there is a correlation between what is happening in the town and these obscene phone calls that are happening. Um, Nash, the front desk guy, certainly couldn't give a fuck, certainly doesn't take anything seriously, um, but also nothing happens to him. He's not reprimanded. He just kind of is able to kind of go out on, on his, uh, his merry way. Um, but now... The abortion subplot, tying into all that, the abortion subplot is one which uh, David and I talked about this in the introductory episode, too, of, of you can kind of hold that up as, as maybe, well, pushing back against everything I just said because of how feminist this whole um, subplot is. And yet, then you also read that uh, Bob Clark admits that the, uh, the abortion subplot wasn't thrown in there because of, I'm sorry, that's kind of dismissive language, the abortion subplot was not included to be any type of intentional progressive feminist stand or statement, but it was thrown in there because they just needed a subplot where characters could talk about something other than the murder. And I have to be honest when I say that I was a little bit upset when I first heard about that because it seems like, well, now this horror film went from being real forward-thinking progressive and feminist to not being feminist. And of course I had the debate back in my head over intention uh, versus not intention I, well, that's not a thing, I guess. Intention versus interpretation, um, the death of the author, blah, 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 blah. But I was talking to my wife about it, and she eventually kind of uh, came, or we both kind of came to this idea of um, it shouldn't be looked at in a manner of is this feminist or is this not. Instead, look at it under the, the context and, and through the lens of at this time, there was such a dearth of plots and subplots dealing rationally and cool-headedly with a woman who has her own agency and, and wants to take control of her own life and doesn't give a fuck what her boyfriend thinks, the fact that that is looked at now as being progressive and feminist does say something about the time in which these films or this film was made and even the you know films that are being made now we hail this as something which is progressive and feminist when really they were just trying to do something that would be engaging and interesting and so look at it in that context instead not as feminist or not feminist but just um the fact that treating a woman equally basically as a character with her own thing with her own agency was not done intentionally to be forward-thinking and groundbreaking, but just like, yeah, this is just a thing. This is just a, a matter-of-fact thing in the character's life. When you look at it in that context, it really does, I think, kind of further speak to this idea of, of patriarchy and men being in, in control of things, which I have been um, talking about. But, um, yeah, that's really kind of the, the end. I, I know I, I touted how uh, 
influential I'll Be Gone in the Dark was going to be, and it kind of turned out to be just a, a, a small piece there. But um, I was struck by some similarities, and, and maybe it was just similarities that I projected onto it. You can certainly feel free to disagree with me if you wish, and you can do so by emailing me at youdomoviesbadly at gmail.com or tweeting at me at NolanFixesTeeth. Um, if you want to watch or rewatch Black Christmas, there are a slew of avenues where you can watch it for free. That includes Roku, Vudu, Tubi, Canopy, although Roku, Voodoo, and Tubi, you're going to you're going to watch it for free as long as you're fine with some ads. Canopy, Shutter, and um, the service that I've never heard of before called Popcorn Flicks. Otherwise, you can rent or purchase it on the usual channels: uh, Amazon, iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, uh, Voodoo, and Fandango. Now, but. Um, yeah, also be sure to catch up on uh, back episodes of I Do Movies Badly by going to battleshipretention.com and finding I Do Movies Badly in the podcast drop-down menu or go to idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. But that is it for Black Christmas. This is really fun. I I really like this movie. I liked it when I saw it for the first time last Christmas. I liked it even more uh, watching it again and really deserves that, that title of seminal uh, film and of, of a horror classic. So um, be sure to tune in next week. I will be covering another horror film taking place on another holiday with my bloody Valentine. And hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 